You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. The Word of God says, this, uh, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the, Lord, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give them the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the reading of God's word. Morning, New City Fellowship. How you guys doing today? Absolutely. I love a church that talks back a little bit. My church didn't do that so well. Uh, I had the privilege of growing a church in Alexandria, and kind of because of my background, but also because I started the church with military folk, this, everybody that came through the door was, it's a great, I mean, it's a privilege to, to pastor military people, but they just keep leaving, right? Like, like they'll come for a couple years, and then... They just leave. I feel like, this is my first time here. I've been to Manassas before. My first time here worshiping with you as a church. But I feel, I mean, I just feel so comfortable because I know your pastor. Uh, so Will and I, I mean, we were, we've been friends since he was an intern in the days uh, that he spent on staff at Portico Church. We went to seminary, RTSDC, together. Um, I mean, Brian's a rock star. Brian has uh, come and kind of helped me. And uh, in our church plant uh, a few years ago, serving as a worship leader. So I feel really comfortable uh, with you all. And it's just a good thing to, to be with you today. I'm grateful to be able to open a word with you and, and stand in, in this spot here today. We are continuing in your series, looking at our future hope. And my assignment today has been these verses that, you'll, that we've already read here in, uh, in Revelation 21. So let me just say a quick prayer, and then uh, that'll kind of ease my heart. Uh, as we get into this, and, uh, and then we'll see what the Word has for us. Father, you know our hearts. You know what we need. You brought us here to this place. It's not an accident that we're here today. You, you've, you've brought us here with, with family on Mother's Day for a, a purpose, and that purpose is to, to glorify you. So I pray that we would do that. God, that we would, we, we live in this great country where we don't have, to, we're not oppressed or persecuted because of our faith. And so we regret for that. Lord, I pray simply this morning that um, the, the meditations of our heart and the, the thoughts that we have for you would be acceptable 
uh, in your sight. Oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer and who we trust. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So in our liturgy this morning, we've been rehearsing this four-point gospel outline. You, you know it as the story words of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So when we think about Rome, uh, Revelation 21, what we're talking about is that third stage of the, the story of God, consummation, that God would restore all that's happened because of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, and that um, has really consumed uh, all of us, not just us, but all of creation. The consummation speaks specifically to the hope of heaven. I'm thankful to, to Chaplain Rich for the, uh, the introduction, kind of rehearsing a little bit of my bio. I always get nervous when people talk about what I've done because of like, you know, that's just stuff on the paper. Like, and, and oftentimes it doesn't match the real you. And so then you have to stand up as the real you. And he was like, well, I thought he was all that. And he's like, well, that's messed up. One of the things that uh, Rich wouldn't have known about me that I'll tell you is that I'm a movie watcher. And, of course, that's nothing special, right? All of y'all watch movies, Netflix, Hulu, Prime. We got all these venues by which we watch movies nowadays. But here's the one special thing about me. Uh, I don't mind if you've seen a movie before I see it, if you tell me everything about that movie. Like, I don't mind if you spoil it for me, particularly if it's one of those sci-fi thrillers or if it's a horror movie, it's because I, I get squeamish. Like, I, I don't want to be surprised. I don't want to have to jump or anything like that in those kinds of movies. I don't mind if you tell me everything that's going to happen, particularly those difficult moments where I'm going to embarrass myself in regards to a movie. But if I'm honest... If I know what's going to happen in regards to a movie before it happens, it kind of messes up the movie, doesn't it? If you, if for those who are a little bit older, think about movies like um, uh, the the Inception, right? You, you guys remember that movie, Inception? Y'all are Christians, so y'all don't watch movies like that, right? <laughs> they have this this alternate reality, and we're trying to. I mean, we're confused as to when they're in or out of this alternate reality. And you get to the end, and uh, and it's got this scene. And you're trying to figure out, well, gosh, has he been in this reality? Uh, you might have a different perspective. Or uh, 10, 15 years ago, there's this movie, Sixth Sense, where Bruce Willis was a psychiatrist. One of his clients was a young boy who used to see dead people. I see dead people was the crazy line from that movie. We get to the end of the movie and we find out, oh, my gosh, Bruce Willis is one of these dead people that this kid is seeing. Now, think about that. Think about knowing the end of that movie, any movie, before you've actually seen the whole of the movie. Wouldn't that shape how you, how you interact with that movie as you're seeing it? It's the same thing as reading a book. When I was in grad school, seminary, I used to read the first chapter of a book, and then I would read the last chapter. And I did, you guys know who I did it, right? I did it personally because I was trying to decide if I was going to read the whole thing, so I was going to read the stuff in between. But really, scholars would tell you that's actually a good practice so that you know where the book is going. It shapes your perspective of what's happening in the storyline so that when you come to the end, you kind of know what to expect. And that's kind of the backdrop that we enter when we look at 
Revelation 21 as regards to our life. We're talking about our future hope as followers of Christ. And in that regard, my, my, my aim here today with you is pretty singular. It's that this thought of a future hope would give us something to anticipate and even to look forward to. But more than anything, that this should change the way that we live in the here and now. It's not that just we have this, these great, glorious things to look forward to, but because we know the end, we know where we're going before we even get there, then like reading a book and knowing how it's going to end before we've read the entire thing, that can have the, the effect of shaping our faith and giving us hope to, to understand how we should live right here and now. So that's where I'm going today with this text. Here's a central thought for today, and you'll hear me say this a couple times, pretty much over and over. Your faith and hope are shaped by how you shaped by how you view the love that God has for you. I know our uh, chaplain Rich opened up Revelation 7 last week for you, at least I think he did. Uh, so this may be a little bit of a review for some of you. Uh, but when we come to the book of Revelation, it's written, or at least it's ascribed to have been written, attributed to have been written by uh, the disciple John, who became an apostle, one of Jesus' closest friends. John is writing this close to the end of the, the first century. And this time, Domitian, specifically Caesar, Domitianus Augustus, is emperor of Rome. And uh, Domitian is most known for his, uh, his reign of terror, uh, his reign of terror against all of Rome, even his own Senate, but particularly in our case, against Christians. Domitian plundered Christian homes. He exiled Christians out of Rome. He had Christians sent to arenas and, and mutilated by animals just for sport. He, he had Christians burned at the stake. He would cover them with tar and pitch and then light them on fire like a, like a tiki, tiki lantern at night so that people could see. He crucified Christians by the thousands along the highways outside of Rome, and he used this as a warning to anyone and everyone that came into Rome that if you profess the name of Jesus, if you confess his name, this was the lot that you would face in life just for claiming any allegiance to Jesus. History informs us that all the apostles were martyred. Domitian had the apostle John boiled alive. And fortunately, John survived that. And so afterwards, he was isolated on the island of Patmos to his death. And this is where he's writing these words from. He gets this revelation, this, this, uh, this insight, this vision of the end and what that end might look like for the people of God. John is actually writing to a group of people. He's writing to seven churches. And these seven churches, these, these groups of people are those who are trusting in the Lord during this, this grave season of, of persecution. And, and so you can imagine that John's words to them aren't necessarily meant to confuse them. We understand them as apocalyptic words. They're, they're scriptic. They're hard to understand. But these words are meant to encourage them so they would hold on to the one. Here's what John writes. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So how many of y'all read a little bit of Revelation? Like a lot of you, a few of you, right? All right. So here's a crazy thing. People 
I don't know why anyone, firstly reading the Bible, would go to the end and read Revelation. It's just not the right book to start with, right? Start with like the Gospel of Mark or John. That's, that's, for, that's for free. Don't start with Revelation. But if you've read any of Revelation, you know it's full of, of visions, of judgments, of very highly symbolic language. And here's what I think that John is doing. John is using human language as descriptors as, descriptors as best he can to explain the things that he's seeing, and the things that he's seeing are anything but earthly. All right, so, so his language doesn't give us the complete picture of what he's actually experiencing. Why? Because there is no, there is no language to do that. And so we were, we're rehearsing the storyline of the, of the Bible in, in our liturgy this morning. Uh, in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. In, in Revelation 21, 1, guess what he does? He recreates a new heaven and earth. That's what's that's what happening in our, in our text. And, and what John is writing is words that show us that the, the very redemptive goal of history is the restoration of a fallen creation. That, folks, is your future hope, that you get to exist and not a, uh, God's going to blow the world up and create it. He recreates, he remakes, he restores what he's already made and, and makes it a place that we would want to dwell in. I think the key in verse 1 is this idea of, of new. This is the Greek word kainos. It means new in nature or quality. So when we go all the way back to Genesis 1, God, uh, God makes something out of nothing. God speaks and everything that exists comes into existence. In Revelation 21, 1, God takes something that already exists, the world that he transforms it into something different. Some, he does that merits the presence of God forever. He does that for us. He's going to do it with all that we know of the earth. And God's intention is to remake or better said, he's going to restore the first heaven and earth. He's going to eliminate all the infection of sin and evil in the cosmic order and make it such that this new cosmic order exists in the presence of God. And there's absolutely no sin, no suffering, no death. That stuff is banished forever. That's God's intent with us and with the world that he's made. There's a couple of notable things in the rest of these verses. Verse one, John sees that the sea was no more. That can be, that can be confusing. Co uh, commentators would say uh, a lot of times when we read in apocalyptic writing and uh, in the prophets, they'll use the the water symbolically for rebellion and chaos. So when John sees a vision that the sea was no more, what really is happening is God has rid the earth of rebellion, chaos, and danger. What's left? Peace. Shalom. The way the world's peaceful. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from the heaven of God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So John sees this heavenly city coming out of heaven. I think it's important to note, John isn't seeing heaven. He isn't seeing, uh, commentators would say, he's actually seeing the church. Not, not a city, a city of 
people. And note what he says. He says, it's as a bride adorned for her husband. Again, it's another one of those word things. In other words, John is seeing a sight that's so beautiful, so ornate, so beyond description. Um, full disclosure, during my wedding, like I'm, you know, I'm, my wife and I got married in our barely 20s. Um, been married 26 years now, thank God. But on our wedding day, my wife is coming down with her dad down the aisle, and I'm standing up here, and it's a sight that's so beautiful to me. I just started crying. I'm like crying, weeping, slobbering at my own wedding. It's supposed to be the happiest day of my life. I think that's what happened. That's what happened. That's what, this is what happened, is happening to John. He sees this sight that's beyond description, and the only words he has to explain what he sees is what he's known on earth. And he, and it says, it resembles a wedding. And scholars would tell us this is none other than the wedding of Jesus and his bride. The church, verse three. And I heard a loud sound, a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as our God. There, there, are, no, there are no better words that we can hear as humans than, than these, that the God of the universe would want to dwell with us and he would invite us to be his people. So John is given, given this vision of the restoration of what the Garden Eden was like before the fall in Genesis 3. God dwelling with people, broken by the fall. And yet, the picture that John is seeing that he's articulating to these people in the first century is that, hey, regardless of what you're going through right now, it's going to be restored. Shalom is going to be restored. That, that thing that you ache for, face-to-face relationship with God, the thing that we were created for, is going to be restored. And if you're reading this as a first-century Christian, in the midst of being persecuted by an evil Roman king, this is welcome good news. And these words would have been encouragement to them. He continues in verse 4, he'll wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's hard for us to do this. We, we don't understand oppression and persecution and suffering and pain like they do. But if you have any inkling of what uh, a, a, a desperate person living a life that they absolutely don't want to live but have no other choice, put yourself in their shoes and think about all the pain they've experienced. They've watched their own loved ones die. They've had all this hardship, mourning and weeping. They've endured all kinds of suffering. And John's words are consoling them. He says, all that you're experiencing experiencing now, I know it's hard. Some of you, it, it may be harder to be dwelling, but God's going to take all that away. And you'll be dwelling with God as it should be. All those deathly things, they'll no longer be in view. You won't be, experience, you won't be uh, in proximity to those things. One, God, one day God is going to eliminate death and mourning and pain. He'll reverse the curse that entered the world through human sin. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hymn singer. I love hymns. Uh, I didn't grow up as a Christian, but I grew up going to church with my grandmother, right? 
Uh, and in her church, Black Baptist Church, all they sang were hymns, right? And one of the hymns they sang, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. All right, John didn't know that hymn, right? But this is what he's describing. He's describing a situation. It's, it's living in it. He's saying, turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you could just get the hope that one day you'll see him, it'll carry you through and it'll make all the mess of this world that you're going through right now, it'll make it, it'll make it fade. Trust me, it'll make it fade. Here's what John is describing. He's describing their future hope. He's describing our future hope. More specifically, he's describing, as his words convey to us, a renewed earth that becomes our eternal home. He's describing heaven. Although I'm, I'm, I, as a, I mean, as a seminarian, I, I'm afraid to, to say that he's describing heaven because the misnomer is that, that in eternity we're living in heaven. The, the reality, according to these words, is we will dwell with God in a new heaven and a new earth. Something that God remakes for our eternal dwelling. Uh, that said, there's a lot about heaven that the Bible doesn't tell us. There's a lot in this passage, uh, starting in Revelation 19 all the way through 22, that we can't learn about heaven. We can go to some of the, the writings in uh, the Gospels and some of Paul's writings and even some of the prophetic writings that tell us about eternity, and we still have questions about Heaven, I mean, what is it? What is it going to be like? Will we know each other? What age will we be? Will I be stuck at that age? Thankfully, hopefully I will. Will there be animals? Will we know our loved ones? Focus on, though, here's what he says. Here's the peace going to be there. And it's going to be a place where that, that he has made new. According to your Bibles, our eternal home will be a place on a new earth, a literal time, space, place where we will live forever, but more than heaven, our hope, our future hope is all about being with Jesus. That's what you should focus on. That's what John is focusing us on, that God would call us to dwell with him and he chooses to be our God. And we, w- we should want to be like him. I, 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 like, I listen to a lot of gospel music, old gospel music, Shirley Caesar. Uh, great gospel, great singer. Shirley's a songwriter, a songwriter, but a song, a storyteller. And uh, in the midst of one of her songs, I can't even remember what the song is. She says, "There's not going to be any anybody in heaven that doesn't want to be there." Can you believe that? There's not going to be anybody in heaven that wants to be there. It's like going to FedEx Field and we're playing the giant. You know, the, the Washington football team is playing the Giants, and we don't even let their team in the building so that the whole Coliseum is, is full of Washington football fans. That's what heaven's going to be like. There's not going to be anybody that's not going to be for King Jesus. He continues in verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne, that's Jesus, behold, said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
For John's first century writers, this speaks to their hope for the relief from all the hardship that they are experiencing in life to this point. And so what was their future that John saw? I I think specifically he saw the end to their persecution. That's what they needed. They needed some hope that, man, this stuff is going to end at some point, that there'll be a better, whatever better looks like for me. He, he repeats the words of Jesus that he gets in the vision. Jesus says, it is done. How do you know, John, that it is done? He says, Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the one that showed me. He's the one that told me so. And by extension, it's the same for us. 2,000 years since these words were prophesied and, and saw, seeing you're one that, and yet it's the same for us. This is our end. Perhaps you're one that, like, life is uh, flowers and, and honeysuckle, right? Perhaps you don't have much hardship. The Bible would tell us that just living life on earth, on planet earth, since Genesis 3, just sucking up the air and blowing it back out, is suffering. This is not life like we were intended to, to, to live. And so it's the end of life's hardships for us as well. This is our hope. We'll be face to face with Jesus And John is saying, this isn't just some story. It's trustworthy and true. He's echoing Jesus' words here. You can write it down. And of course, the focal point is not that you get to go to heaven as a future hope. It's that you get to be with Jesus and you get to experience his love. Verse 6 has two illusions. The first is to Isaiah 55, 1. Here's what Isaiah saw. He saw, he says this, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and price. Brian, said, Brian alluded to this earlier in our liturgy. The invitation was that there is a sustenance, a nourishment for us for the asking. All we have to do is come and, and seek it, want it, and God will provide it for us. More importantly, I think this is a, an allusion to John 4. John 4 tells a story about Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus and the disciples are traveling from south to north in Israel. They're going from Judea to the region of Galilee where Jesus is from. They have to go through Samaria to do that. The typical Jew would go around Samaria because Jews did not like Samaritans. But Jesus decides to go through Um, he's at a well. The disciples are out finding food and a woman comes with buckets to draw water from this well and Jesus engages in a conversation with her. He really reads her mail, prophesies about all that she has done and this woman, of course, realizes that there's something special about this man and as the conversation ensues, Jesus tells the woman, I've got water to drink that if you would just ask. And of course, this woman is like, Ah, give me some of that. I want some of that water, right? It's a beautiful story. Um, you should go back later this week and read it. The, the, I guess the, the point of the story is, is the metaphor of this eternal spiritual nourishment that we can gain from Jesus. It's about salvation. So this woman, having met Jesus, goes back to her village and witnesses to what he's done and how her life in that moment had been changed. And the invitation for us is that there is for us, for those that are thirsty for, uh, for nourishment and enduring nourishment, all, it's, it's there for us for the asking. So the thirsty I give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Verse 7, 
The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This verse speaks to the hope of an inheritance as the collective sons of God. That's a hard phrase to say on Mother's Day. Mothers, this, women in general, this is not leaving you out. The Bible is not meaningfully misogynistic. Of course, this is a, an ancient culture. Uh, firstborn sons were progenitors. They were the ones through whom the, the resources of the family were given so that the rest of the family would be taken care of. So that's what this is speaking to. But what this is more so talking about is when we endure and overcome the, the pressures of this life such that we don't lose sight of what we have to gain in Jesus. That what's waiting on us is not just the beauty of this, this scene of glory, but we're being promised the intimate knowing of God. And it's also the promise of the blessings that that firstborn son as the progenitor of the family would gain. But here's where the, the, the contrast in everything that John has seen in this vision sort of takes a turn and it, and it becomes stark. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, what John is talking about. Everything up to this point has been inviting. We've been invited to, uh, to see uh, where our end is for those who, who persevere, for those who conquer their own natural inclinations and, and choose to follow God, choose to believe enough that we follow God. But there is also a path that leads us away from him. In verse 7, John gives us this incredible anticipation for the believer in Jesus of the inheritance that we gain if we simply overcome and endure. Again, in our liturgy, we read Romans 8, and that teases that out in the latter parts of that. So you should go read Romans 8. But in this contrast, here's what John is giving us a vision of. That anyone who substitute, substitutes all that you have and all that you could gain in relationship with God for the things of this world. Hell is waiting for you. And so John is saying to his readers... He's saying to us, this is trustworthy and true. This is like real stuff. It's sobering, but it's words that his first century readers and hearers needed to hear. And they're words that we in the 21st century, the central thought that I gave you, your faith and hope are shaped by how you view the love that God has for you. Your faith in knowing and loving and serving Jesus and your hope, not just for this life, but the life to come, are shaped by how you view the love that God has for you. So let me, New City Fellowship, give you some promises. I promise you that your life will be filled with the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. How do I know that? Because I'm looking at you and I'm older than almost all y'all in here. And, and that's what it means to be human. You're gonna have some good days and you're going to have some bad days. Some of the highs, some of you will meet the love of your life. You're going to get married. Some of you might enjoy the blessing of having children that look like you. Some of you will be successful in your life's work, and you'll actually enjoy it. It'll bring you pleasure. Some of you will just have a lot of satisfaction from life living on planet Earth, and you'll have not a lot to complain about. But this is also true, and this is where you get to the lows, 
I promise you that at some point for all of us in this room, in your life, you'll have some incredible setbacks. I promise that you'll have some moment, some event, perhaps just a phone call that changes the trajectory of your life and just gonna rock you to your core. I promise that some of us in this room will experience betrayal. All of us in this room at some point will be sinned against. For those of you that are parents that have kids, those kids will let you down. It's gonna hurt. Some of you will have marriages that are hard. Some of you will experience something so grave that it undermines whatever script you've written for your life when you were younger. And then when you get older, you look, think back to what you thought you were going to do or be or become, and you think, my gosh, I just squandered all that away. I think in perspective, what John is conveying to us in the 21st century about Revelation 21, 2,000 years ago, he's pointing us to that whatever your highest of highs or lowest of lows might be, that, that whatever those things are, compared to what you have in Christ, those things are small. Life successes and failures are important. They shape us almost like watching, knowing the end of a movie or a book before you've experienced the whole thing, but they're not ultimate. And compared to our life to come, if we believe in Jesus, they're, they're small, infinitesimal. In other words, our future hope should guide how we live. What you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. C.S. Lewis says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one, that's from Mere Christianity. John Piper from his book, Desiring God, the person who knows that his destiny is glorious and certain will be free to live the most radical life of love and sacrifice here on earth. If I could sum up what these prolific writers and pastors are saying, it would be this. If you understand what's waiting for you, your future, if there's any anticipation of how glorious it's going to be, it's going to liberate you. It'll eliminate your excuses. It'll take away the worry of your reputation, of what people think about you. You'll lay aside the fear of man because if you have Jesus, guess what? You're free to be sacrificial. You're free to be gracious. You're free to be kind. You're free to be compassionate. You're free to be loving because if you have Jesus, you have all that you need. That's what John has got a few verses from to see to see the thing that he saw. First Peter corroborates this. We're going to look at a few verses from First Peter just so you understand that John is not the only one seeing these things and articulating what they are. So similar to the vision that John gets pointing to the future hope of a new heaven and earth, Peter writes to persecuted Christians that are living in the diaspora. Diaspora just means Jews who were exiled from their home place simply for what they believed. And so Peter, uh, 1 Peter 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We have a living hope, not a dead hope, not a forlorn hope, a hope right now that's based upon our hope for the future. And what makes that hope sure? Jesus got up out of the grave. 
the person and the work of Jesus. Verse 4, to an inheritance that's uh, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through a faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You want to know what hope looks like? That's what Peter says. He says it's, uh, it's, it's undefiled, imperishable. I said that in out of order. It's, it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. What do you think about when you think about hope? What do you think about when you think about hope? A lot of times we, we think like this. Man, I, I hope it doesn't rain today because it rained yesterday. I hope I get a promotion. I hope tomorrow's going to be better than today because today sucked. Kids in the room. Man, I hope I get this specific toy or gadget for my birthday. That's the kind of hope that we as humans in this world kind of think about, right? We think about a hope that's usually something uncertain that we can't control if we get it or not. In other words, it's empty. It's not even an assurance. That's not biblical hope. That's not the hope that Peter has for, for his future or the, the, his, the future of these people that he's writing to. Christian hope is sure and it's certain. Paul will say in Colossians, it's the hope of glory. Why? Because it's attached to Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit in us is uh, uh, the, the down payment of that hope. So I want you to imagine you go to your mailbox tomorrow, you get a check, it's got your name on it. It, it, it looks legit, like, yes, right? It's, got, it's filled out every way it should be. The memo line says, bless you, and somebody that looks official has signed it. Now, when you have that check in your hand, it's just a check. But guess what that check is? It's meant to be a guarantee of money that will be accredited to you when you do physical banks that you can go to for USA across the country. So I just take my phone, guaranteed to me, is in my account, and I thank the Lord, right? That's what, that's what Peter is seeing. That's what Peter is saying. By the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, by the new birth he's given you, God has signed his own name on a promise and a check made out to you of the glory to come. Sure, it's certain. You can rest on it because the living Lord has given you new life. He also talks about inheritance. We saw that in Revelation 21.7. Our inheritance as the sons of God. God gives us a gift. Any of y'all got an inheritance, a trust fund? You got a house or land or some, um, some memorable piece of, of, of thing from uh, a family member that's passed or that just wants you to have it? Here's the thing about an inheritance. You don't have to work for it. You're not getting it because you've performed some kind of wage or performance for it. Peter says it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Poetic language from a guy who was a fisherman, but basically he's saying God is guarding it for you. And if he's guarding the inheritance for you, it means nothing can spoil it. One commentator says it's untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It's compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. In other words, nothing can keep this inheritance from us. God is, keeping, God, God is keeping us, guarding us for it, verse 5 says. He's also keeping that inheritance for us for the day that we eventually gain it. I'm gonna just going to read the rest of these verses because they just sound good to me, and it's encouraging to us. Verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary you've been grieved by various trials, 
So they tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you loved him. Though you do not know him now, you believe in him, rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, he's assuaging his readers, there is a certain future hope for you, but enduring to the end and getting there is not for the faint of heart. You'll experience some suffering, but here is your end, obtention of your souls. So here's a question for us. What is this hope, this inheritance, this salvation that Peter speaks of? Is it not the same thing that John saw in Revelation given to him from Jesus, the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth? But, but here is my argument for you today. The, 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 the hope that we, that we desire, the, the inheritance that we really gain at its core is nothing less than God himself. We get to see God. We get to be with God. He will be our great joy and delight forever, as John Piper would, would say. God gives himself to us in the person of Jesus. So Jesus literally is our inheritance. Your faith and hope are shaped by how you view the love that God has for you. I'm going to finish on this idea of love. I'm going to read one passage, and then we're going to be done. Paul writes uh, this crazy letter to the, the, uh, the church at Corinth. Uh, we pick on them because they seem like a crazy church, but honestly, the church at Corinth, they're just like every church. They're just like your church. They got a lot of great people. They got a lot of great things going on, particularly spiritual gifts, and there's some dysfunction, right? So in the midst of talking to them about uh, what's good and what's bad, he talks to them about, uh, he, he, tries, he tries to rein them in uh, on one of the things that they're really good at, and spiritual gifts. So verse, uh, chapters 12 and 12 through 14 talk about spiritual gifts, and smack dab in the middle of that, Paul talks about love. Why would he talk about love and the smack dab of spiritual gifts? Because love is a gift. You probably know what love is unless you get love from God. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, all right, Corinthians, you got some cool things going on. I love what I see, the gifts that, that, that I've given you. They're, they're, they're in demonstration in your, in your corporate gatherings. You're speaking in tongues. You, have, you can have all kinds of, you're like, like angels in the sky. But here's the thing about, about gifts. You can have all kinds of great things happening, but if you don't have love, it's as if you don't have anything. Then he goes on to describe love. And you know these words. These are words said at most of our weddings, right? Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude, on and on and on and on. And again, why is he talking to us about love? Because this comes from God. It's a gift. And if you don't get it from God, you don't really have what it takes to, to love someone the way God would have you love him. And then the point I want to focus on is what he talks about towards the end. By the time Paul gets to to verse 8 all the way through the end to verse 13, he gives us a picture of all that we think that we know about the life that we're living, both now but also the life to come. And Paul is saying very simply, all the things that we believe are important, all the things that we believe are ultimate, and then he says his verdict is none of us have seen the full picture of what God is up to. We only see it, we only know it in part. We have a partial view of what is to come. Partial, kind of like what John shows us in Revelation 21. Verse 8, love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, they'll pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, verse 10, but in the, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That's an important verse. What, what's, what's perfect? There's no one perfect but Jesus, right? What does he say? When the perfect comes, when Jesus comes, the things that we think we know and see will know more fully. Why? Because Jesus will take the partial and give us more understanding of that. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Mirrors in our day weren't like the mirrors of the first century. The mirrors of the first century were pieces of metal. And so you looked at the, the piece of metal and it was a little blurry. It was, it was basically a mess, right? Like you saw an outline of yourself, uh, not your full self like we do today. But here's what, here's what uh, Paul says. Now I know in part then I shall know we don't fully, even as I have been fooling to. And the, the difficulty of life that they're facing in the moment where they're receiving his words. Think about the pain and the hardship that they are enduring. And, 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 and John is saying, like Peter is saying, like Paul is saying, you know what? These are real things that you're experiencing, but they're only partial. And Paul would say the same thing to us. The life that you're living, they're real things, but it's only partial. When we have a better view of Jesus face-to-face, a better picture, so to speak, you'll, you'll know how things really are. The, the, the things of life, the highs, the lows, though important, they aren't ultimate. Because when you see Jesus, it'll be as if you climbed up the highest summit, Mount Everest even, and you'll have a better view, a better line of sight. You'll see things clearly. And then verse 13, now I know, now faith, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I like how he waits to the very end to give us like the, the final word on such an important, we're going to get the being for us. And here's the cool thing about our future hope. One day we're going to get to be with Jesus. And when you're standing face to face with Jesus, the thing that Paul knew in these verses that that I'm going to tell you now is you're you're not going to need faith. You're not going to need hope. Why? Because love is the thing that will keep us through eternity. God's love. What will we do forever is we're going to love. And we're going to love because we see Jesus. We're going to love perfectly and we're going to love fully. We will experience forever the deepest expression of love that you or I could ever imagine. Let's hope and let's love like we expect this stuff to happen one day. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. I pray that it would not return void, but that it would meet your people exactly where they need it to meet them. For those who are here that have never professed the name of Jesus, God, I pray that like the woman at the well, that, they would, that, that your words would come to them as a balm for all of their ills. God, that you'd open up their minds to understand the gospel of a God who would love them, that he, and love them enough that he would send his son to die on a cross in their place for their sin. God, that they would gain understanding of that, not in a mindful way, but in a heart kind of way, and they'd be willing to give themselves to that. For the rest of us, Lord God, we pray that you give us a mind and a heart and a longing, not just for the glories of heaven, but to be with Jesus. 
that we would long to see him face to face and that these words would be not just consolation, but they would be the thing, as Peter says, that would give us a living hope to live our lives today in view of what we're going to live in the future. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen. But one of the ways we respond to God's word is by taking communion together. And so hopefully as you came in, you received an element that contains both a small wafer and some juice. And if you didn't, I would commend you to go out there in the foyer and grab one of those. I have one here with me in the front. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus broke bread and he gave thanks for it. And he says, this is my body given for you uh, as you do this, remember me. And so in your own time during uh, the song that Brian and the, and the team will lead here, I encourage you to reflect on Jesus, uh, this, this meal that he put together in remembrance of him, of what he would do, going to the cross, dying in our place for our sin and be grateful. At the same time, Jesus says, in the same meal, he says, he lifted a cup full of, of wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you, uh, symbolic of the blood that was shed on the cross in our place for our sin. The, the truth of these elements is they're, they're just ordinary wafers and juice. Up here we have ordinary bread and wine. But for our hearts, they're efficacious. That means they have a spiritual use for us that's beyond our understanding. And so let's receive the, the bread and the wine together. Amen.